0: Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of the Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the upcoming book, The Only Witness, a historical fiction tracing a possible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today, we're speaking with Giulio Fonti. He is a longtime researcher and speaker on the Shroud. And today we'll be talking about some of the research he's been doing on the shroud. So let me tell you a little bit about uh, Giulio Fonti. Since 1996, Giulio Fonti has been the Associate Professor of Mechanical and Thermal Measurements at the Department of Industrial Engineering of the University of Padua. He was a founding member of the Interdepartmental Center for Space Studies and Activities, CISASG Colombo and secretary of the Italian group of official teachers of mechanical and thermal measurements, and was a member of international groups for important space missions. He has been studying the Shroud of Turin for the last 25 years and has been coordinator of the Shroud Sciences Group for about 20 years, which is more than 100 scholars, mostly Americans, and was a member of the scientific committee of several conferences. He was recently named the coordinator of a university research project on the shroud funded by the University of Padua. His current research activity is aimed at explaining at least partially the process of the body image formation, which has still not yet been reproduced today. The 3D reconstruction of the wrapped man's posture, the dating of the relic with alternative methods to the C14, the carbon 14 testing, and a micro analysis of body fluids to better define the effect of the tortures suffered by that man. He is the author of more than 200 works, including books, educational texts, and publications in important Italian and international journals, most of them on the subject of The Shroud. Julia, welcome and thank you very much for being here. Hello, thank you for uh, this call <laughs> absolutely. Thank you, Giulio. So, uh, so tell us uh, what is your backstory on the shroud of Turin? How did you get involved in researching the shroud?
1: I have to say that it is quite complex because I really believe that it doesn't depend on me, but it is Jesus who calls. Actually, I have been called several times in my life, starting from when I was 10 years old, when I took a trip to Turin, I wanted to see the Shroud, but obviously in the 60s the Shroud was inaccessible and it could not be seen. That was my beginning. But I've always had a certain connection, a certain thought about these things. Then came the great success of the STURP team, which in 78 made some very interesting analysis. As a boy, I follow in the newspapers these things, a bit with interest, but nothing more. There were various reminders that the Shroud gave me, but I put them aside. Then in 1989, when the results of Carbon-14 were published, all the newspapers in Padua and also in the world, of course, say that the Shroud is a medieval fake, the Shroud is a fake at that moment I already had a feeling that was telling me the shroud is probably authentic but I didn't know what to do and I put this aside too. Then around 1995 in my course of mechanical and thermal measurement I introduced the study of vision of the analysis of images through vision systems and studying this topic deep in this topic I realized that the vision systems did very interesting things and at that point something came to my mind If the shroud is an image that cannot be explained, why not try applying vision systems to the shroud? And there I began to do the first things, and I had the opportunity to present my first work at the Congress of the Shroud in Nice in 1997. A work that today I would never present because it was so trivial and simple but back then for me it was already a first step going to this congress and I could find so many people who got me involved and even provided me without asking for free material referring to the shroud so I said to myself let's try to continue these studies a little longer then a very important step was made in 2004 when Giovanni Rigi di Rumara held an exhibition here in Italy at the 3M Center where there was the possibility to analyze various samples taken from the shroud physical samples and there I came into contact with him, and he provided me with material that it is very important, so important that I started studying it, and even today I can't stop because I have found key things that have led me to considerable insights. Someone from above probably guides me, I am consecrated to Our Lady, so maybe she is the one who also suggested something to me, because just last year I was asked to start studying Eucharistic miracles. Now I am studying five of them and I see that there is also a correlation precisely with the blood of Jesus of the Shroud and therefore it is something that goes on like that. I have the material, I study it and then I disclose it.
0: Okay. Uh... So, uh, so the shroud is a controversial relic. Can you prove that this burial sheet wrapped the body of Jesus Christ? No.
1: (laughs) No. Strangely, I cannot. I am sure that the shroud wrapped the body of Jesus Christ, risen after his death, and I'm sure, based on the studies I have done on the shroud, This certainty comes to me not from an experimental point of view, but from a set of clues, hundred, not just a few, but hundreds of clues all pointing towards this certainty. But actually, there is no clear proof from the scientific point of view that can say that that is Jesus of the Shroud. And this is a really strange thing, strange because I have done several studies in other fields. When after a while you get to study something, you get a certain result. Yes or no? In this case, it seems yes, but there is always that uncertainty. And I have wondered several times, why is there this scientific uncertainty in the result, even if we have hundred and hundred of one-way proofs? As mentioned earlier, I found the answer that in my opinion this is the most important proof of the authenticity of the Shroud. The proof is a known proof of the existence, in my opinion, because if we think about the things of God, the things of God are a bit special, and in the sense that God has given given us free will, and he proposes himself, but doesn't impose himself. He gave us the same thing with the shroud, in the sense that if he had given us 100% sure scientific proof, everybody would have been forced to believe in him. Instead, he gave us the opportunity to believe. He gave us hundreds and hundred of clues, but we have to take the last step. And this is a very special thing, because we come to have an almost certainty, but the last decision is up to us. In addition to this, if we make a comparison, as I often do, also between what has been found on the Shroud and what we can find in the Bible, in particular in the Gospels, we also find hundreds of clues in favor that indeed clarify many points that are not so clear in the Bible. For example, it is written that Jesus was cursed. but before studying the Holy Shroud, I thought that Jesus was cursed with maybe a few lashes and that's it. On the Shroud, I counted more than 370 scourged wounds. Therefore, this can make us understand how much this man suffered for us. By studying in detail the evidence that we can see on the shroud, we also get closer to Jesus Christ and to understand how much he suffered for us.
0: Okay, so uh, so tell us about your latest research on the body image formation and also the holy fire. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay, I can say this. That the STURB research team in 1978 highlighted with scientific evidence that the double image that we can see imprinted on the shroud was not made with paints, dyes, or other artificial methods. These studies showed that the shroud is an irreproducible image. Even today, it is not possible to reproduce this image. Since then, these studies have progressed a bit, and different characteristics have emerged that we have also published in appropriate conferences on the shroud different characteristics that, when combined together, make it extremely impossible to get close to reproducing precisely this image by artificial means Just as I said before, I begin to study, also through image analysis, these characteristics in such a way as to see if we can formulate hypotheses of image formation that is reliable. I begin by studying a very important characteristic that although it is not accepted by some scholars, it has been accepted by referees that have published my work in international scientific journals, so I think it is appropriate to describe it. What is important is that the image is characterized by a very high superficiality, but this superficiality is double. What does double mean? It means that it's like thinking that the Shroud image is comparable to a book, a book that has all the blank pages only the cover above and the back cover below have two images in the middle there is nothing and this is a very particular point because it excludes many if not almost all the hypotheses of image formation by radiation that right now are the most popular there was a German physicist named Oswald Scheuermann who directed me in my opinion he is in the right line of thinking who let me know that there is a particular effect called corona discharge which can explain these things. He also explained to me how to do experiments to demonstrate this if we use very high intensity electric fields. We're talking about when having hundreds of thousands of volts as an order of magnitude. You get the images that are doubly superficial. There are other scholars who have thought about how to explain this intense electric field necessity to obtain these things. For example, Alan Adler tried to explain this effect as a ball lightning, but if we think that Jesus of the Shroud was in a sepulcher also sealed by a stone, it is a bit difficult to think that a ball lightning, which is already rare in nature, could enter the sepulcher. On the other hand, here in Padua, with the help of Professor dire, Giancarlo Pesavento of the Department e of Industrial per Engineer High Voltage e Room, e we conducted some tests on mannequins of bearing scales 1 to 2, litro, 1 to 3 and then mannequins litro about litro one, litro one, litro one, litro 1 meter long covered with a shroud-like fabric, so fabric so to see if images so are obtained. We were able to obtain images similar in some respects to the shroud image that clarify many other points that other hypotheses failed to obtain. But even these are results that in themselves are not yet complete. They are not complete, because even if they are able to reproduce at the microscopic level or or almost all the shroud's characteristics at the macroscopic level, there is still a lot to do, and this is the point where I arrived a few years ago, but I said, maybe, here there is something to change, to add, and in my last book, written with engineer Murphy, who is a thesis student, who has worked a lot and very well with me, we began to propose the so-called hypothesis of divine photography, the hypothesis of divine photography, because actually the shroud shows a similar photographic image, but obviously a photograph in quotation marks, not made with human means, but a divine photograph because it refers to aspects that are still difficult if not impossible to reproduce in the terrestrial environment. This hypothesis, which itself is very complex, will be published in English, I hope next year, in the new book that I'm writing with the American expert Bob Sifker. He has already been interviewed by you, I guess. This just to briefly explain e it, is based on the fact that the body fluids exuded by the corpse, such as urea, have been soaked in an amalgam, let's call it manteca. It is a particular amalgam consisting of aloe, myrrh and various oils, with urea mixed in and then soaked into the holy shroud. I talk about the urea because we know that Jesus was cursed very intensely, especially on his kidneys. And if we block the action of the kidneys, they let flow in the blood an extremely high quantity of urea, which obviously from the corpse, which is then exuded to the outside. This urea was probably triggered by a very intense electrical phenomenon that it is possibly easily correlated to the holy fire that occurs every year in the holy sepulchre of Jerusalem.
0: Yeah, very interesting. So can you talk about your thoughts on the Holy Fire?
1: For the Holy Fire it would be necessary to clarify various things that I'm writing in this book because it is something very complex that among other things is little understood, both in Europe and also in America. I have seen that it is something very well known in the Orthodox Church environment and unfortunately there is still someone who says, yes, well, but this Holy Fire is something fictitious, the patriarch has a lighter, he lights this fire and he distributes it to the faithful. It is not like that. In 2019 I have been there to see it, and I've seen that things are a little different. What happens? Historically it happens that for more than a thousand years, every year in the Shrine of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, on the day of the Holy Saturday, various extremely particular phenomena occur. What are these phenomena? Before the so-called appearance of the Holy Fire, an electrical phenomenon occurs due to high voltages obviously not caused by man. They take place in the vicinity of the Holy Sepulchre of Jerusalem, and a few years ago the Russian scientist Andrei Volkov went there with the measuring instruments and detected extremely intense electric fields just before the formation of the Holy Fire. What actually happens, apart from these external phenomena, The fact is that the Orthodox Patriarch enters the Shrine of the Holy Sepulchre, also escorted by a policeman, who verifies that he doesn't have a lighter to light this fire, and the Patriarch enters with unlit candles. The Patriarch kneels in prayer in front of the stone of the Holy Sepulchre, and it results from the testimonies of various Patriarchs in the various years that a phenomena a little different from ear to ear occurs, but always attributable to the Holy Fire. There are descriptions that after the particular prayer of the Patriarch, right from the stone without human intervention, a bluish fire rises from the headstone that increases intensity and sometimes even comes out of the room of the Holy Sepulchre. By the way, in 2020, I had the opportunity to study in detail a video produced by Greek television, which accidentally filmed the bluish flames that spread from the room of the Holy Sepulchre. I also have these photographs. This fire develops and gradually increases in intensity a few years even it is reported by the patriarchs on the stone of the Holy Sepulchre a very fragrant substance like myrrh and aloe comes out there are various phenomena but what is important is that this bluish flame takes place and the patriarch takes his candles and lights the candles with this bluish flame then the patriarch comes out of the shrine of the Holy Sepulchre and distributes the fire to the pilgrim this fire is a very special fire I can testify to it in person because in 2019 they gave me this fire. By the way, a few minutes later, there's very interesting thing that makes me say it's okay if somebody says that anybody can light it with the lighter and I accept it but show me how somebody can get such a peculiar fire. Why is it so peculiar? It is a cold fire. The plasma of the fire is cold, cold in the sense that for the first 5 to 10 minutes it maintains a temperature of about forty to 50 degrees Celsius and there are also my photographs on the internet where I hold the candle underneath my beard and I feel no pain at all. In 2019 I was lucky enough to be able to do some experiments and these experiments are published in a scientific journal entitled is the Holy Fire related to the Turin Shroud. This journal can be found on the internet and you can also view the results. This Holy Fire is something extremely peculiar, at least someone has to explain to me how it is possible from the human point of view to light a candle that doesn't burn at least for the first 10 minutes. Now, I'm not saying that this candle fire can be the cause of the formation of the body image, but in my opinion what happened before the bluish flame that developed inside of the Holy Sepulchre may have induced the chemical phenomenon linked to the presence of substance such as aloe, myrrh, and urea, which combine together, forming the body image in a very particular form. If anyone is interested, next year this book will come out where I go into details on
0: this topic. Yeah, very, uh, very interesting. Uh, I, I look forward to uh, learning more about that on when, when your upcoming paper. So uh, many affirm that the Holy Shroud is medieval, but you have just demonstrated in a new book that a coin of 692 AD reproduces the relic. Can you explain that? Yes, I have to say that when someone
1: still says that the Shroud is medieval, it simply makes me loud because it is impossible if we address the subject from a historical and scientific point of view to continue to declare these type of things. But, as I said before, the Shroud still leaves an open door for those who persistently don't want to believe in that, and therefore someone can still say it, but don't tell me that on a scientific level, because there are hundreds of pieces of evidence that show us that the Shroud cannot be of medieval origin. Now, I cannot go into detail to demonstrate these things, I can only say that if anyone is interested, I can report some of the many scientific findings that prove that this cannot be. In any case, I can say that also from the historical and iconographic point of view, there are many references and proofs to the first century after Christ, therefore, long before the Middle Ages, that bring us to the Holy Shroud, or rather to the body image of the face mainly of the Holy Shroud. Also here, I will not go into detail, because otherwise If we want to list all of the icons of the first century that reproduced this thing, we would not finish. However, I refer to the book I have just written about Byzantine coins where I present in enough the whole series of Byzantine and not only Byzantine coins that reproduce the face of Christ. We are sure that this reproduction is of the face of Christ because around the face reproduced in the coin it is written Jesus Christ or even Jesus Christ King of Kings and similar descriptions. What is extremely interesting is that these numismatic reproductions are very detailed. Still today, I wonder how the Byzantine engravers of a thousand years ago reproduced all these details that obviously are not found in other coins of other states. And we see there the face of Jesus Christ, declared as such, is very similar to the one of the Holy Shroud. There are obviously not all the details because it is impossible in a face of the size of 10-15 to 15 millimeters to reproduce all these details, but it's interesting to see that the various engravers have focused on the reproduction of certain details that are extremely specific. First they reproduce a face that is not beautiful. We know from the Bible that Jesus was the most beautiful among men. This is already a question mark. Why the Byzantine engravers decided to reproduce a face that is not beautiful, asymmetrical and terter? Sometimes we even see the crooked nose, the swollen cheek and many more elements of the face of the man in the shroud. Why would this be if it is not referencing to the details that we can see on the shroud image? The first coin that shows these details very well dates back to 692 after Christ the solidus of Justinian II, solidus Aureus with its submultiples, Thremesis, all these reproduce the face of Christ which is very similar to the Shroud face. From all of this, I have made a probabilistic analysis on the probability that an engraver could get that result without having seen the Shroud, When I got this result, I almost couldn't believe it, because it turned out that the hypothetical Byzantine engraver who reproduced the image of Christ on the solidus of Justinian II had only seven chances out of a billion billion of obtaining that result, and therefore, certainly, he must have seen the shroud. I can't say for certain that the shroud was in Constantinople, but it could have been that the engraver went, for example, to the city of Veseda, where some believe it was kept at that moment, and he had the opportunity to copy it, but he must certainly had seen the original or a well-made copy in order to reproduce it. Another thing that came out when expanding on the study, I analyzed several coins of this type and I could understand that these coins were minted by various Byzantine engravers also resident in various cities, Making a comparison of this various solidity of Justinian II from 692 AD, it turned out that there are very beautiful images, very similar to the shroud image and others less. Why is this? Simply due to the fact that some engravers, like the ones I explained before, must have seen the shroud in person, others had seen copies or copies of copies and therefore reproduced the image in not a very good way, let's say so. And this is what happened also in the following centuries, until 1204, when there were towards the fall of Constantinople, we found a whole series of shroud-like reproductions of the face of Christ, however, as we go forward in time, depending on where the different engravers were located, we also find cases in which the image takes unpublished details or even we also find images that are more similar to a normal face, not a shroud face, precisely because not everyone actually had the opportunity to observe the holy shroud. But on the other hand, it appears that all these coins only had one explanation, and a common origin which was that of the Shroud. So I think that this as well is a fairly important proof that the Shroud existed in various cities of the Byzantine Empire, especially from at least 600 AD onwards, and therefore obviously the medieval hypothesis fails.
0: Yeah, I find the uh, the coin evidence to be overwhelming. But uh, but then, of course, we have the 1988 radiocarbon test demonstrating that the holy shroud is dated from 1260 to 1390 AD. Was there perhaps a scam?
1: No, I wouldn't say that. Many have said everything about this test and accused various scholars of a scam. I would limit myself to discuss the results from a scientific point of view, how then the news was reworked is another matter. So in my opinion the laboratories, which today are all serious laboratories, have obtained results that are scientifically indisputable, but we must see what is meant by scientifically indisputable results, in the sense that without making parallel analysis, let's say that they analysed the piece of linen taken from the shroud. What did they do? They took this sample of about a square centimeter, just to have an order of magnitude, they divided it into sub-samples, they burned them, to do the analysis of carbon-14 you have to burn them, they burned small pieces of the shroud, and they counted the isotope ratio between carbon-14 and carbon-12. Without going into detail to explain what this is, inside the linen fabric there are different carbon atoms which have different characteristics. There is the isotope carbon-14, which is precisely what interests us, and the carbon-12 isotope. Carbon-12 is a stable isotope, whereas carbon-14 is a radioactive isotope which decomposes into other elements. From the carbon-14-carbon-12 ratio, by making appropriate comparisons with tables obtained from other results, so we can see what H correspond to the ratio just measured. So I say that the laboratories in Arizona, in Zurich and Oxford, they got a scientifically valid result because they simply measured the carbon-12 carbon-14 ratio. What did they do then? Once they provided this result they compared it with a table and they got the medieval result we all know. What's the problem? The problem is that they did not consider a possible sample contamination Contamination of what kind? No analysis of this type have been made, at least until that time. But we must keep in mind that the isotope Carbon-14 is an isotope that it is extremely rare in linen and therefore, if we increase by a very small amount this isotope, we can have an age range from 1000 AD to 1000 DC. A very small contamination is enough to go from one day to the other. What possible environmental effects, systematic effects could there have been? It's not that scientists wanted to look for systematic effects to try to explain this treatment, but many papers published in international scientific journals and especially concerning statistics have shown a certain inconsistency of these results. Why inconsistency? Understanding that I admit that I'm okay with what the laboratories have measured, the interpretation that was given later is not reliable. Why? Because analyzing these results, especially from a statistical point of view, we can find that there is a trend. What does it mean? In an area of few centimeters, we find a variation of centuries, which is a bit strange. Indeed, one of the basic hypotheses is that the tissue that they analyzed is uniform. Non-homogeneity should sound an alarm bell, yet has not been sounded, and the laboratories have made a mistake. Here is the error of the laboratories, or of those who have interpreted these results. They did not consider this alarm bell. Now this trend was discovered and we know that the shroud has been dated from a corner. If we extrapolate the results of this trend to the opposite end of the shroud, the result is that the shroud is datable to 20,000 years in the future. I say this not so much for scientific validity, but just to get an idea of how wrong these results are. But what could have interfered with the enrichment of carbon-14? Various hypotheses came up, for example the chamber fire in 1532, which, however, I will leave aside for a moment because I did some experiments and a fire, in my opinion, may influence, depending on how the fire is simulated, the date equivalent to the ratio of carbon-12 to carbon-14 by a century, or two at the most. What happened? I agree with what was hypothesized during the publication of the results by some scientists, a certain Phillips in particular, hypothesized that in the formation of the image, to form the image you have to think about an explosion of energy, in my opinion also an electrical type of explosion as I said before. In this explosion of energy there could have been an explosion of neutrons. Why neutrons? Simply because from a chemical point of view, neutrons can interact with the nitrogen atoms present in the linen of the shroud. And transform it into additional carbon-14 and suddenly everything could be explained everything could be explained because if we add even a small amount of the carbon-14 isotope the corresponding date changes it changes in the sense that it rejuvenates makes younger the sample by a few millennium so here is why the shroud of the first century after Christ was dated to around 1300 cd until a few years ago this was only a hypothesis But just last year I found an initial confirmation of this result and studying Linen is something quite complex because there are various types of contamination, but I had the good luck to have even some very small blood samples, blood of Jesus of the Shroud, and doing some simple analysis it turned out that there are more or less all the atomic components contained in normal blood, but with an anomaly. Which one? It is known that human blood contains a certain amount, not high but a certain amount of nitrogen, it is always present, the amount of nitrogen in the shroud blood is basically absent, the peak is hidden by the background noise, so it is basically zero, initially I hardly notice it. It was after reviewing these results that I thought about it. Why there is no nitrogen? Simply, if we think of this neutron radiation, or the nitrogen in the shroud, almost everything has been transformed into carbon-14, which rejuvenated the sample. So, in my opinion, there is nothing to say about the radiocarbon result. It is only necessary to interpret it appropriately.
0: Yes, uh, very interesting. So, uh, Uh, With all of that, then what do you see as the next big things concerning research on the Holy Shroud, such as the body image and the 1988 carbon-14 as proof of the resurrection?
1: I have to say one thing, first of all as a premise, if we know 5% of what you might know about the shroud, we know a lot, so the research must be multidisciplinary, on many sectors that can provide us with a lot of information about this sheet, that still today we do not have, but among the most important things to analyze, as just mentioned, in my opinion there are two, number one, to deepen the understanding of the formation of the body image, which still today is not explainable and even less reproducible, and indeed, I have to issue a challenge, read my new hypothesis based on divine photography and comment on it, because this could be the starting point that could lead us to deeper understanding and to explain in the image, at least, uh, to understand its formation better. We cannot, in my opinion, claim to explain it completely with phenomena of natural origin, but we have to refer to it as something miraculous, and that's why I refer to the very particular phenomena of the Holy Fire, because once explained in a more detailed way how this Holy Fire develops, explained from a scientific point of view, we can also understand something more about how this Holy Fire may have interacted with the shroud to form the body image. I didn't say something pretty important before. The phenomenon of the Holy Fire is managed by the Orthodox Church, you might know that the Orthodox Church is quite reluctant to verify the truth of faith from a scientific point of view, because for them it is necessary to believe and that's it. In fact, even for that reason I had various difficulties in carrying out various tests as I told you before a few years ago, but next year, perhaps, also driven by this scientific article of mine on the Holy Fire that was published in an international journal, they are thinking of forming a team of scientists who will perhaps be able to study the phenomenon of the Holy Fire in detail next year. So probably even soon we could have some very important news on this phenomenon. So what, in my opinion, is important is to combine the information of the holy fire with the holy shroud, because if we keep them divided, obviously we find it a bit difficult to understand one without the other. My second point is to reanalyze the result of the carbon-14 of 1988, but absolutely not doing another analysis of the carbon-14 as today or tomorrow, because if we are ignorant we don't know what happened on that linen that was analyzed in 1988. It is more important, in my opinion, to repeat the result in another area of the shroud to see if the result changes or not. First of all, in my opinion, we need to deepen our knowledge of the formation of the body image, see what are the phenomena that may have interacted with the isotopes carbon-12 and carbon-14, and that's why we should build on the explanation of the formation of the body image. Once this hypothesis has been developed and based on the results, as I said before, foreseen in 1989, by the scientist Phillips, who hypothesized an explosion of energy also imposed by neutrons. If we can verify this, we also try to explain this phenomenon from a scientific point of view, and when I say it, many look at me with strange eyes, but in my opinion, the result of 1988, the dating of carbon-14, could be perhaps the first proof, not exhaustive, but the first very important clue from the scientific point of view of the resurrection of Christ. Because if the carbon-14 proof will prove that there was indeed this neutron explosion that I have seen in the blood, nevertheless, it should be investigated a little bit further. if this is confirmed, a corpse that produces a neutron explosion obviously refers to something that is supernatural and obviously linked to the resurrection. So as we go forward, we get closer to understanding this phenomenon, this is what can be done in the future. I hope, however, that there will be the possibility of having access to the shroud, because as of now, it has been over 20 years that the physical samples of the shroud has been extracted and stored away in a drawer, they have not been made available to science, why does the church continue? To to hide these data, these samples? Are they afraid of something? Perhaps the shroud will reveal more of
0: the truth. Wow, thank you, Julio. Uh, that was uh, really fantastic. I really appreciate it. You were uh, just thank awesome. You. And uh, yes, uh, and thank you so much for being here. And uh, I know it's difficult with uh, the languages, but uh, in any case, very definitely looking forward to any new information and research that you do on the Shroud, and it sounds like there's a lot coming. So with that, then uh, please stay tuned for many other videos in this series of the backstory on the Shroud of Turin. Please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. If you like this one, please rate it with five stars. Julio, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye.